Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. There's an old saying, only two things in life are certain, taxes and death. My guest today is no accountant. We will be speaking of end-of-life issues. Her personal experience and extensive research has made her a national expert on dying a good death. We will bypass what could be morose or depressing and go directly to empowering. While end-of-life care can make for a difficult discussion, physicians need to be well-versed in this area. Join me for a thoughtful conversation on the art of dying well, next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Katie Butler. She is an award-winning journalist and author of The Art of Dying Well, A Practical Guide to a Good End of Life, and also Knocking on Heaven's Door. Katie is a frequent national lecturer. She has spoken at Harvard Medical School, Cedars-Sinai, and scores of other well-known medical institutions. Katie Butler, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you very much, Mike. I'm really happy to be here. Well, we were pleased that you could join us. You're a journalist. What led you to focus on modern medicine and its uh, its problems and discontents? Well, I'd been kind of a general journalist for many years, uh, did a lot of investigative reporting, covered mental health for a long time. And then when I was in my early 50s, um, got a phone call, which a lot of people inside and outside medicine get which was my mother in tears telling me that my dad had had a major stroke. Mm. And they were on the East Coast and I was on the West Coast. And I was immediately, understandably, just seized with getting on a plane, getting out there and being as much help as I could possibly be. I kind of joined what I call the rollerboard generation. You know, there's these sort of aging, middle-aged people who find themselves because of the enormous extension in longevity that's taking place in the 80s, 90s, even above, get involved in kind of family caregiving in one way or another um, for years, maybe even decades. And so I had this sort of um, pigeon's eye view of what medicine toward in the aging stages of life looks like. Um, My dad survived, unfortunately, for another seven years and ended up saying things like, I'm living too long. Mm. And what I saw was a, a tragic mismatch, which I see as a systems mismatch. This is not the fault of individual physicians, Um, but there's this systems mismatch between the needs of aging people as their health declines and a lot of what gets provided in medicine. And for my family, that was crystallized when my father was given a pacemaker two years into this process. And pacemakers, as we know, can be amazing quality of life improvers um, for older people. But in this particular case, it was like no discussion of goals of care, no discussions of an exit plan no discussions of his life getting to the point where he was really wishing to die and exhausting my mother as a caregiver. So 
what I saw was a medicine that was a reimbursement system that was capable of paying tens of thousands of dollars for a high-tech intervention like a pacemaker, but was actually incredibly, um, I would say, pound foolish, penny wise and pound foolish when it came to things like speech therapy. Hmm. So there was this tension between the sort of hands-on soft skill medical needs my dad had and what was offered and promoted. Um, so that led me to uh, first write a New York Times article about that. And much to my surprise, that went viral. And it was a questioning of this intense use of technology toward the end of life. And in my family's case, it was a pacemaker, but it could have been ICU, it could have been renal failure, it could have been numerous other things. And so what I, I just came to see was that there was tremendous suffering occurring toward the end of life, and that some of it was completely unnecessary. It was a matter of a failure to have conversations or to be able to speak in kitchen table language with a patient about the limits of what medicine could do. So that's what kind of, I mean, I would say my real goal was, is, continues to be to reduce unnecessary suffering close to the end of life because loss of suffering close to the end of life is not avoidable. Loss of suffering in life is not avoidable. But when, when because of these siloed systems and fragmentation and the lobbying of, um, you know, medical device companies and pharmaceuticals, the, the way that has shaped our medical reimbursement system, some of these things are avoidable. And I wanted to kind of raise the alarm for people and give them some information. Thank you. I, I want to talk about your award-winning um, books, Knocking on Heaven's Door and your other book, The Art of, of Dying, uh, both exceptional reads. How do you hope these books will help people or what do you hope that these books will mm -hmm. accomplish? Well, as, as all of your listeners are really aware, we have a great deal of siloism in medicine, great deal of fragmentation. And unfortunately, um, at least I believe, and I bet some of your listeners do too, there's a lot of rewarding financially of things that may not be helpful when people are not in this stage of life where you can fix things. You know, I mean, all the wonderful ways medicine can fix things, especially in the earlier decades. Um, this system is very opaque. You know, medical people see it, but the average layperson has no sense of the landscape, no sense of the lay of the land. And so when they don't understand a physician talking to them, they feel stupid. They feel like they're not up to snuff instead of feeling like, wow, I'm dealing with fragmented systems. The cardiologist is saying one thing and the, you know, the urologist is saying something else and the personal a care physician is completely overwhelmed and has no time for me. You know, I wanted to normalize that this is a difficult rite of passage. And I wanted to give people some sense of the landscape that they would be dealing with, both in terms of their own health as they're going forward, and in terms of how to navigate these systems that are um, not always connecting and not always functional. It occurs to me that the system is difficult, certainly, as you point out, for patients and their families. 
um, but oftentimes also for for providers. Have you seen this um, firsthand in, in when when someone uh, patient dies, uh, the impact upon his or her providers? Um, I've seen it in all kinds of ways. I mean, when I've spoken, you know, publicly and done ground rounds, there's so many physicians who will say, give me some language, give me some kitchen table language to say this. And then of course, they also say repeatedly, how am I supposed to do this in 15 minutes? Mm. You know, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time with these patients for these conversations. Um, so that's one obvious way. And then there's a very sad thing, which is that it seems to me it's almost a rite of passage within medicine when you're a young, you know, you're a resident, you're a trainee, an intern, and you watch a futile and unnecessary CPR. You know, you see an elderly person with their ribs getting broken or being repeatedly shocked, and there's so little attention. Nobody seems to have any language to talk about the impact, as you pointed out, the traumatic impact on young doctors and older doctors, to say nothing of the traumatic impact on families. So I've seen this a lot, and I've also seen doctors kind of, I mean, one of my big interests, because I was a journalist long before I was studying the structure of medicine, is how we use language. And so I've seen, I've often heard doctors talk to me about how maybe as a young trainee, they said to a family, not able to really say to the family, it looks like your father's dying. But, but saying this thing of, do you want us to do everything? And when you ask a devoted daughter, do you want us to do everything? The only answer a devoted daughter can really give from inside her own psychology is, of course, I want you to do everything. And then we're, we're in this chute that goes down to a death that traumatizes everybody. And sometimes doctors have told me when they're putting these things out, they're kind of silently begging, oh, please, please say no, you know, to the family member, please don't say yes, please tell me you'd rather avoid CPR or whatever it might be. Or it could be yet another round of chemotherapy or yet another attempt to go into a um, clinical trial, you know? So I think this lack of language and this therefore presiding over deaths that are more painful or less sacred than they might be I think it's traumatizing for everybody, for nurses who work in ICU, for doctors who feel these conversations have not gone the way they would like, you know? Um, I think, and then I think COVID obviously made it a hundred times worse because, mm. you know, there comes that point where failure is not stopping a death. You know, failure is presiding over a very painful death that traumatizes people, you know? And so for doctors and nurses and techs to be put in this position where they're holding the iPad and the family can't come even in the room or hold the hand, I think there has been mass trauma in medicine because of the nature of these deaths, especially in the, the first year of the COVID epidemic. 
I'd like to go back to your point of of lack of language. It seems to me that that healthcare in in, in medicine attracts individuals that care about their their fellow man. Mm-hmm. And I I take your point that there's a general lack of of language, but but how do you think we get to that point of a disconnect with people that self-select to really want to take care of their their fellow man, but then find themselves in a position of not having the language um, uh, skills uh, to uh, to do so? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's partly, tra- you know, partly we're victims of our own success. You know, that mm-hmm. technology and chemos and advances and immune, you know, there's so many advances that have made doctors feel in this generation in a way they didn't three generations ago, that you're failing if a patient dies, you know, if you can't avert the death. So I think redefining what failure and success are is a start. And there's some beautiful books like uh, uh, when, um, what is it? When It's not when life becomes air, when breath becomes air by Kalanithi, who died, who was a young doctor who died, neurosurgeon, um, who died young of cancer himself. And there's beautiful language in there about how important it can be to be a witness to the suffering of a family um, or a person. And that that in itself is healing and is part of healing. And you don't have to cure and fix everything in order to play an extremely meaningful role in people's passage from life to decline, to death itself. I'd also like to to recommend, if you don't mind, a wonderful, um, it was a American Medical Association, CME, um, a thing called uh, Goals of Care at the End of Life by Marvin J. Stone. And it is a, it's an ethics CME. Uh, it's quite old. It's like 2021, uh, 2001. But I, um, I still think it's the most absolutely brilliant thing I've ever read. And he really talks about language that, um, language that helps and language that harms. And they actually focus group this language. So, if, for example, saying things like, do you want us to do everything possible? Will you agree to, quote, discontinue care? I mean, that's very euphemistic and terribly destructive because we never withdraw care. We continue to care. Um, We may withdraw technology. We may withdraw or decline certain treatments. But care is something very, very different. Um, So I need so things like that are, are terrible for families to hear or patients to hear, but here is some language that really works. I'm gonna give the best care possible until the day you die. We will concentrate on improving the quality of your child's remaining life. We wanna help you live meaningfully in the time you have left. I will do everything I can to help maintain your independence. I want to do, let's discuss what we can do to fulfill your father's desire to die at home. I mean, all of these are, wonderful contributions to the ultimate healing and the emotional legacy that's left after a death. And in some ways, they're they're very simple language, but when we're so oriented in another direction, it's hard to kind of make that shift, you know, to talk, talk less about what we're not going to do and more about what we can do instead. 
it strikes me that you're really talking about the art of medicine more so than the science of medicine. Would you agree with that? I would, yes and no. I, I definitely think this is part of the art of medicine, these soft skills, this ability mm -hmm. to have an emotional relationship and make a connection and validate whatever someone's going through. But I also think there's some science and I would gently challenge your audience. Uh, we know a great deal about when chemotherapy becomes completely ineffective and actually damages and destroys remaining quality of life without extending it. And, um, you know, I think there's a standard in medicine, which is if you have chemotherapy within the last two weeks of life, somebody's failed somewhere along the line not to see the handwriting on the wall or mm. be capable of communicating it. So I think the scientific part is to recognize the point where the damage to quality of life is so great that the advantage in length of life is not worth it, or simply that there is no advantage in terms of length of life. You've done a lot of speaking at medical institutions that you, we could reel off a list of them and everyone listening would know these institutions. Mm -hmm. um, how do you go about helping medical providers when you go and, and, and speak at these institutions? I try to tell my own family story in a very heartfelt and honest way, including all of our ambivalences. And I speak for the part of the lay population that either beforehand and certainly afterhand looks back and says, I wish we hadn't done that. I wish we hadn't done that third. I wish we hadn't done that feeding tube. I wish we hadn't done that third round of chemo. Um, I want to reassure doctors that there are among their patients and families people who are hungering for an honest lay of the land, an honest sense of the landscape ahead, and a um, they don't want maximum treatment and maximum longevity. There's There are numerous studies that show that people want to die, if possible, at home. They want to die spiritually at peace. They don't want to be financial or emotional burdens on their family. These are the things that register as goals of care for people ahead of extended longevity. So I want to reassure doctors that even if they don't do a perfect job at delivering bad news or saying that your mother's slowly dying or we're approaching the end of life, that there are a lot of people who are hungering for that and even though they may be mad at you in the moment and think, oh, that doctor was too blunt or too brusque, you're actually doing them a huge favor going down the line, further down the line. So I think it's to reassure. A lot of it is to reassure. In researching and writing your your books, Knocking on Heaven's Door and the Art of, of Dying Well, did you come across things that surprised you? I would say the thing that surprised me the most as a, I suppose, a rather secular person at heart was the importance of the sacred. And I'm defining that incredibly broadly. Um, and doctors are doing this. There's an ER doctor at Kaiser who has a whole protocol now for creating a calm space in the ICU in a private room if someone is dying 
in the ER and putting a sign on the door and taking away all the monitors, that the importance of silence, the importance of rituals, um, and that and that even in a hospital, it's possible to provide some of that sacred space without trampling on anybody's religious beliefs. Uh, so one example is something called the pause, which was um, invented by a palliative care nurse, which is that when someone dies in the hospital, to gather the medical team in a circle around the bed and take literally just 30 seconds to speak the person's name and give the entire team just that moment to accept and take in the enormity of what has just happened. Um, there's a ritual I'd like to read to you, if you wouldn't mind, which was Please. created Please. by some oncology nurses in Santa Barbara, California. Um, and this is a this is a ritual to do after a death in the hospital. And again, something incredibly healing, not only for families, but in this case, nurses, the nurses mm -hmm. themselves. Okay, so I'm gonna read, it's a little bit from my second book, which is called The Art of Dying Well. In many cultures and religions, it's traditional for relatives and friends to ritually wash the body or anoint it with oil after death. Nurses are now bringing a beautiful non-denominational version of this ancient ceremony into hospital rooms. This is a way not only for families, but for the nurses themselves to say goodbye. After washing and dressing the dead in clothes from home or a clean gown, the nurses encourage relatives and friends to anoint the body with lavender oil. The physicality seems to be very helpful said Beth Combs, one of these nurses. I have a theory that after witnessing a death, we go into shock and our minds become numb and chaotic. When we start bathing and touching our loved ones, our bodies understand what our minds cannot. I just love that line. Our bodies understand what our minds cannot. So here's a version of their ceremony. And I, I've done this often at more like lay people gatherings and often people will imagine having done this ceremony with somebody they loved whose death maybe did not go as well as they wished it had gone. So as the hair is anointed with oil, a nurse or a family member recites, we honor Jane's hair that the wind has played with. Next, a dab of oil is gently rubbed on the brow as someone says, we honor Jane's brow, the birthplace of her thoughts. And then we go on through the rest of the body. We honor your eyes that have looked on us with love and viewed the beauty of the earth. We honor your nostrils, the gateway of breath. We honor your ears that listen for our voices. We honor your lips that have spoken truth. We honor your shoulders that have borne burdens and strengths. We honor your heart that has loved us. We honor your arms that have embraced us. We honor your hands that have held our hands and done so many things in this life. We honor your legs that carried you into places of new challenge. We honor your feet that walked your own path through life. We give thanks to the gifts you have given us in our lifetime 
We give thanks for the memories that we created together. We have been honored to be a part of your life. And I just think this is so beautiful. And it took us maybe three minutes. And yet the, the healing capacity of this kind of activity, um, again, thinking of your audience, so many CEOs of hospitals and heads of departments that trying to institute and let some of these rituals in might be very, very helpful in terms of staff burnout, which I am quite aware is a huge problem now. And no wonder, again, given these COVID deaths, uh, that particular ritual that I read, I've included it in my book, but it was actually published originally in Oncology Nursing Forum uh, by these three nurses who created it. So it's available there as well as inside my book if you want to find my book, but you don't have to. Um, and so I think it's also on my website at katiebutler.com. And if it's not, I will, I really need to put it up there. Um, and I found out about it because I created a Facebook group that's called Slow Medicine. And that um, it's an enormous mix of lay people and all kinds of, you know, palliative care doctors, nurses, the whole range of people who are interested in this sort of end of things. And I learned about it through these nurses who were on that um, Facebook group. And then I got to be here today and share it with your audience. And um, I hope people find it healing themselves and perhaps useful for their institutions. I think that they, they will. Um, I greatly appreciate your time. Uh, Katie, one more one more time for our audience that may be um, uh, traveling. If they want to get a hold of you, uh, how's the best way to reach you? Uh, the best way to reach me is through katiebutler.com, my website. So thank you very much. Thank you. My guest has been uh, author Katie Butler. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. This was absolutely wonderful. And I, I really appreciate your your gentle way of asking questions. And it's it's just been a wonderful experience. Thank you very much, Mike. My thanks to Katie Butler, her books, Knocking on Heaven's Door, and The Art of Dying Well, help advance the discussion of end-of-life care. Her time and willingness to tackle a difficult topic are much appreciated. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Wilson Rizzuto had his holy cow, but man Robin. Rip book about.